0: and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. Our movie today is one that is near and dear to my heart. In fact, this is one of the most important movies to me, of course, of all the ones that we've done so far, just because this movie meant a lot to me as a kid, and it kind of breaks my heart that it's not really as revered and beloved now as it once was. And that movie, of course, is 1981's Clash of the Titans, featuring Harry Hamlin, though the special effects of Ray Harryhausen, and some wonderful topless shots and beheading scenes that you didn't see in a lot of PG movies back in the day. And my guest today, uh, let's see, he is a uh, professor of history, a professor of education, uh, a friend of mine going way back. I'm excited we finally get to do a podcast together because we've been talking about doing one for a long time. I'm really excited to pick his brain since he is involved in education, and this is a movie based on historical work, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jason Rasmussen. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. So, Jason, uh, welcome to the show, and you may be my first teacher on the show i'm trying to think back here if if you're not the first you're one of the first so i'm very excited that we have the stamp of a of a literary approval here on this one. Oh, i, I speak big words from time to time <laughs> yes now just right off the bat are you a student of greek mythology like is this your bread and butter this is this the kind of stuff you teach or is this something maybe you just kind of had a passing interest in now
1: I have taught world history, both the uh, ancient and up to you know up to antiquity and things of like that. So I do have some background in Greek and Roman mythology, um, even some Norse, but uh, not super crazy strong to where I know every single god and demigod
0: and all this kind of thing. So, but you've read the Monster Manual, right? Oh, absolutely. Dungeons and Dragons for life. <laughs> okay. um, Why don't you give people kind of a background on uh, your history with this movie, how you got involved with it, how old you are. I think you're within a couple years of me. I'm 44 years old. You're right around my age. So, like, this movie came out when you were a kid, right?
1: That is correct. Yeah, I was uh, 10 years old when this movie came out. The perfect time for the PG movie, you know, is actually pre-puberty, so the boobs were only a side uh, bonus. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I actually remember... Riding my bike down to the movie theater you know, back in the day when it was safe to do so, and seeing this one a couple times in the movie theater.
0: Yeah, see, I was, I was just thinking the other day how I first got introduced to Clash of the Titans. I was seven. I'm three years younger than you, so I this when this movie came out, I, I did not see it in the theater, and I was trying to think how I got turned on to it. I, it must have been through the toys. Because I'm sure I don't have to explain this to you, but anybody who's younger than us wouldn't know that there was a huge line of toys and marketing and tie-ins with this movie, and they really tried to make Greek mythology cool to little kids. And, it I mean, it really worked on me into the fact that I ended up going to college and almost majoring in classics, which has got to be one of the worthless, most worthless majors you can have. But I almost did it, and it's 100% because I saw this movie as a kid, and it just blew my mind and opened my world to all these possibilities about mythology and monsters and creatures. So, like, to me, I hold this movie very special.
1: Oh yeah, me too. Absolutely, it was um, like you said. The toys were the were the major thing. Having having that toy Kraken was like you're the best kid in the block. People come play at your house, man. You know. And then of course there's the Pegasus. You know, with the wings that you could detach. But then you know it was Pegasus. I mean, heck, what what more can you ask for? Did you have all the toys? Uh, I had Kraken. I had Pegasus. I think that was about it. I didn't have anybody else. I don't believe.
0: Did they have an Andromeda figure? i don 't believe so now, okay, so if you wanted to reenact this movie, you had to take like a Princess Leia and chain her to the rock or something, and then because again, you can't recreate this movie without the major heroine that's the whole plot point, right? I think we'd go much more with the Shira uh, <laughs> reference on that one. <laughs> the Princess of Power has been captured and tied to a rock i i I take <laughs> offense at that, Jason. <laughs> OK, so, uh, yeah, you can hear our, our back history again. This is one of these movies that was just so big for its era. And again, it came out in 1981, which is the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I remember them being almost equivalents, like what a big deal they both were. Is that would your memory kind of back that up?
1: Oh, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw this one in the theater multiple times. And back in those days, it was rare to see movies in the theater multiple times. I think there was this, there was Tron, The Dark Crystal. I think these are a few of the movies that really, you know, uh, formed, like you said, childhood and uh, and gave me a love of, you know, Medusa. And, and, well, it wasn't really the Kraken, but the Kraken and and all this kind of stuff. And, and of course, Bubo. I mean, Bubo is just, you know, the, the most awesome thing when you're 10 years old.
0: Yeah and that's that's the thing we really want to impart to people that you know we're speaking of a kind of an era that's long gone these early 80s but like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Clash of the Titans, Tron. I mean this is all these are the big movies of its era of the era and again it's it's just kind of breaks my heart that this movie was kind of just it just kind of got forgotten and pushed aside and then of course the dreaded I'll say the four letter word here, remake when they start remaking stuff and it shits on your childhood, which I really don't want to get into the remake, but did you, are you like me? Did you, do you refuse to see remakes or are you cool with them? I don't refuse to see all remakes, but this was one I did refuse. Yeah.
1: I just don't think that they can, I mean, as you'll as you will come out here during the uh, course of the, podcast i'm a big ray harryhausen fan i think stop motion was is is and you know is great and uh having it cgi and all this kind of thing and making it all action-based it's just not the same
0: yeah and that's okay that's i'm glad you brought up ray harryhausen's name i'll give a little background on this movie to people who may not know that uh it's, it's uh, again, the first big Greek mythology movie I can think of. I know they had maybe some back in the 60s or 50s, but nothing to really this extent. And the big special effects era, or the big special effects guy of his era, was a guy named Ray Harryhausen. He did this stop motion, these claymation effects, which are very distinct. When you see, uh, I'm sure you'd agree with this, when you see a Ray Harryhausen movie, you can identify it instantly, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah, and I, heck, if you look at it, my first name is Jason, and I was based off of Jason and the Argonauts, you know, so hey.
0: Wow, so are you, in fact, stop motion? Yes, yes, it, that's why I stutter every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, so this Ray Harryhausen guy did all of these movies, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Uh, He did a couple some big ones back in the 60s and 70s. And this movie is really his his crowning achievement. This was the last movie he did. And it really it's coming in an era when special effects and movie technology is kind of updating and modernizing. And there's not really a need for stop motion anymore. And so, like, this is kind of a movie with 60s special effects and they're kind of charming how quaint they are. But again, this is the one he went out with a bang. He made this movie. He produced it. He did all the effects. And so, if nothing else, this is like the default definitive Ray Harryhausen showpiece here
1: oh yeah and the thing is also is that uh, I mean his, his like you said it's his pinnacle and uh, it just there's some scenes in the movie that we'll talk about that you you couldn't tell these days if they're cgi or you know a real thing so like for example when we get to the scorpions I mean we'll talk about that later but you know scorpions you could not tell that they're stop-motion
0: yeah, and and I I've shown this movie to my kids. My son hardly ever comes out to watch a movie. He doesn't really like movies. He's more of a you know YouTube guy. He likes watching you know people play video games and likes watching them how they do that. But every so often he'll come out and watch a movie if I'm watch if I'm having it on TV. Clash of the Titans. He comes out and watches every time. And in fact, he just came out and watched it with me last night. And I asked him, I'm like, what do you think of the special effects in this? Do you think they're good or you think they look crappy? And I was actually kind of surprised. He said, well, some of them don't look good, but for 1981, it's pretty amazing. That's, that's his opinion. He's like, it looks pretty good for how old it is. And that was kind of my my opinion as well that you see like not all of this the effects in this movie stand up well there's a couple like Calibos I don't think works that well the dog especially I've always been bothered by but the ones that matter in this movie the Kraken and uh, Medusa and Pegasus in particular I still think those hold up really well I think they look fantastic even to this day
1: Oh yeah, Medusa blows my mind. I mean, and then after the recent rewatch of the film, I'm just sitting there going, it's so much more amazing what they could do with the stop motion. Thinking about how much work went into it, it was just beautiful. And Medusa comes across. Originally, they were gonna do her with uh, rubber snakes in her hair, and then Ray Harryhausen says, "Uh-uh," and they and they put
0: the moving snakes in there. I mean, that's one of the things that just kind of is freaky about watching it. It's great. Yeah, you have to realize how much uh, effort was spent animating every single snake on her head, because they're all individual. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so again, the stop-motion stuff, and I, I would argue, and I'm sure we'll get into this more, that CGI, of course, looks better and more natural, but I'd argue in a movie like Clash of the Titans, you don't want them to look natural. Like, I love the weird ethereal stop motion where it's like halting stopping starting they move like they don't move like a normal thing or animal or human would move it just is kind of odd and off-putting and i think that works so well especially in the medusa scene so that's always my argument that you know in a lot of cases cgi might not be better because when it's done this old weird creepy way it actually it, it has a better effect in some of these scenes Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm a big proponent for the old school methods and things like
1: this just because there's so many movies with CGI in them where it's just you can see lifeless eyes or things just don't move the right way or it just doesn't seem like it fits in the screen. But stop motion, you got something to work with and you can you can overlay that on the screen and you know, in, in the actual film and it looks like they're actually in the same scene, but like you said it's a little jerky sometimes or a little bit uh, unusual, but that doesn't matter. There's something to look at that's solid.
0: No, I 100% agree with you. I'm glad someone actually thinks of this like I do because, again, we are in the very uh, str- small minority these days, but CGI maybe isn't always better because I know a movie like this will take hits. Like if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, you see like a modern audience reviewing this movie. That's always the thing they're going to focus on, that it doesn't look that good, that the effects aren't as good as, or as smooth as you would see today. So it really, it really kind of breaks my heart a little bit, to be honest.
1: Yeah, and the thing with this movie is that I don't think people understand is this was one, like almost one of a kind. I mean, it was its its own story. It was unique. It was so different than other movies. Like you said Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, had a very uh, set hero and, you know, go, go from point A to point B, but uh, this movie had uh, you know,
0: not or the anti-heroes in some cases, the gods for example, yeah, okay. I, I have a story I have to tell, and it might it might stretch a little long here, but I, I I want to really share with people why this movie means so much to me. Are you ready for my my tale? Sitting around the campfire here, Jason. Absolutely positively. (laughs) Okay. So, again, I saw this movie when I was seven, and it just opened my mind to all this world of Greek mythology and monsters and heroes and stuff, because, like, as a kid growing up, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. It's not the kind of stuff you read about or hear about. So, this movie really opened my mind to this world, and I, like you, Jason, got big into Dungeons and Dragons around that era. And I really just, I just had a lifelong fascination with mythology. And like I said, I ended up in college 12 years later, and I went to Santa Clara University in California. And my favorite teacher there was a guy named John Heath. He was the uh, chair of the classics department. And I am not really someone, I was never a great academic. I was never all that interested in school, but at Santa Clara, I just loved studying classics and i had no intention to major in it i just really loved this guy who ran the department i'd just hang out with him in his office and we'd talk and just he made me laugh and that was that's the nearest way to win my heart is make me laugh and so i just ended up taking a bunch of his classes and i almost i came within one class of double majoring and ended up with a classics major which is just again not not especially the most useful major to have (laughs) but and here's the part of the story that 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 you'll find interesting i think is that my classic professor hated clash of the titans like this was the bane of his existence because it's not mythologically accurate and mm-hmm. so he would just rail on it in class he would say i hate that movie you know kids show up in my class and i want to teach them you know the history of you know, Ovid and and uh, metamorphoses and all the actual classic texts and they come in here and everybody knows the wrong stories because they know clash of the titans and because, and so, it, this was the thing, this was what drove him insane that people come in there thinking that, you know, Perseus flew on Pegasus, and he's like, that's not true, that's not in the books, that's Bellerophon. Perseus doesn't do that at all. Have you had stuff like that in your class where people come in, like, knowing the incorrect versions of stuff? I'm curious.
1: Oh my, my big one is the uh, Patriot by Mel Gibson. Oh my God, I teach U.S. history as, as one of my many, but uh, people come in thinking the Patriot is accurate and it's good and all this kind of thing. I just, oh, I tell the students they can they can they can do book report or reports on any movie. They can do they can do Pocahontas if they want to, but not the Patriot. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so it's the exact same thing. This movie was the bane of his existence, and he would just go off on it in class saying how terrible it was and how much he hated it and how much it ruined the mythology. And I'm, I'm a very meek person. I don't argue with people. I mean, it's almost impossible to see me argue with anybody in real life because I just don't do that. But I actually would argue with this guy in class, and I would argue, I'd say, I'm like, half the, re- half the people in your class are here because they saw this movie when they were seven and it turned them on to Greek mythology. And he says, yeah, but it's the wrong Greek mythology. And I'm like, but it doesn't matter. It's the passion that led them into studying this in the first place. So, again, this is like the only academic argument I've ever been in in my life. And I would not back down because I'm... I'm, Again, that's why I was into classics. So that's one thing I want to uh, get across to people why this movie means so much to me personally and why I wanted to do an episode on it just because, you know, I've fought this fight for years that despite its inaccuracies, this movie serves such a greater purpose in so many kids of that era. So I, I doubt John Heath is listening, but if he is, I just want him to know that I was right.
1: <laughs> I would agree with you though. I mean, it's it's not necessarily the facts that get have to draw you into a typical field or anything like that. It's the idea that this is uh, some interesting and exciting stuff that that really uh, set a lot of people on the on a uh, uh, not not a path, but a they read books about it. They like you said, Dungeons and Dragons. Heck, Dungeons and Dragons. You mentioned the Monster Manual earlier. I know monsters from the Monster Manual, and, and parts of them are Greek and Roman and, and you know, all this kind of thing. It's it's just because. That's, that this this part of this movie influenced me on like that
0: and just something that you reminded me of just saying that right now my daughter is a uh, paleontologist she studies paleontology in college right now and i was just talking to her a couple of weeks ago about clash of the titans how you know academics tend to hate this movie because it's not accurate and she's like oh my god you know the other movie that's like that and oh I will, I will i will see if you get this jason what is the what is the movie that paleontologists might hate to the level that uh classics professors hate clash of the titans Well, this is
1: one my wife won't watch anymore, but Jurassic Park.
0: There you go. That's what my daughter said. She's like, paleontologists hate that movie, and it's the exact same thing because it teaches incorrect facts about paleontology, but again, it probably drove a lot of people into wanting to study dinosaurs in the first place, so it's one of those, is it doing more harm or good in the long run? Yeah. Well, you know, when you start
1: creating dinosaurs from DNA and all this kind of thing and realize that it just can't happen, well, you
0: know, it's just kind of a... Well, let's let that slide for the movie kind of thing. Well, you know, Jason, they spared no expense. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So are you ready to delve into the story of Perseus and uh, Andromeda and Medusa and Clash of the Titans? Absolutely, positively. All right. So we uh, open the movie again. This is all based on, again, we'll, we'll try to talk about this maybe more at the end, how much of this is really based on myth and how much they've made up for the movie. But... For the most part, it is historically sound. We open with, uh, what is the uh, uh, the kingdom here at the start of the movie? It's Argos? Uh, Argos is the beginning? Yeah, Argos. Okay, so there's this king named Acrisius, and uh, he rules his kingdom, Argos, and they don't explain it in the movie, but he's been given, he has a daughter, and there's been a prophecy that one day his daughter's son is going to kill him and overthrow him, so rather than piss off the gods and kill this kid. Again, this is a very common trope in mythology that that, that people are always killing their kids and grandkids. Um, he decides, well, I'll just take my daughter and her baby and throw her into the, the the ocean. They put her in a little coffin and the baby in there. And he's like, I'm not technically killing the kid now. I'm just putting them in a coffin and throwing them out to the sea and whatever happens will happen. And so this will literally drive the entire rest of the movie. This little uh, this woman, Danae, and her son, Perseus, have been cast out into the ocean.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, they jump right into it, too. They don't give you, like... A, a moment to you know, get past the credits. The credits end, and boom, they're setting these people off to the ocean.
0: Yeah, so uh, so again, these this poor mom and her baby have been thrown out into the ocean. And again, this is all mythologically accurate. All this is really backs up, is backed up in the text. And then we cut up to Mount Olympus, and we see all the gods up there. And, and this is like all of the big-name actors and actresses in the day, and most of them are British. Who do we got in here, Jason? We got uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Zeus. who else?
1: Uh, we got Professor McGonagall. I mean, uh, Maggie Smith is a younger, you know, Maggie Smith. Uh, who else do we have there? Um, of course, Harry Hamlin. Uh, um, <laughs> Ursula Andress. Ursula Andress, of course, the Aphrodite. Yeah, yeah. You know, but – it always throws me off when, when uh, Maggie Smith is into anything, because I always see her as Professor McGonagall. So I just wait for her to cast a spell.
0: Well, see, yeah, for me it's different, because I must have seen Clash of the Titans a hundred times before I ever heard of Harry Potter. So, yeah, I just see her in, in Harry Potter. I'm like, hey, that's, uh, that's Thetis, the uh, goddess of the sea. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're all up in Mount Olympus, and all the gods are just standing around in their robes. And, and Zeus, as he is wont to do, is fairly pissed. And he's like, "That is my son, that boy Perseus. I gave. I am his father. How dare a mortal cast him out into the sea?" And and again, this is very historically accurate. That, um, for you know, I'll, I'll try to be a little sensitive here, but in in mythology, it's one of the great things about the, One of the great running tropes in Greek mythology: Zeus is forever going down to earth and banging people, and he has thousands and thousands of kids all over the place.
1: Well, not only not only having sex with people, but having it in many different forms too. Yeah. You know? Human, a goose, whatever it might be, the, 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 the flavor of the day.
0: Do you know how he impregnated Danae? Um, th- that one, I can't remember off the top of my head. This was a shower of gold. She was she was locked in the tower. Her fa- her father knew someday that she would give birth to a son who would destroy him. So she he was she was locked in a tower, so no man could ever you know introduce himself to her, meet her. And Zeus, of course, penetrated the tower, came down as a shower of gold, and impregnated her. And so it's one of <laughs> a it's a classic Zeus move there. <laughs> yeah, Zeus Zeus gets around is all we can say. Yes. Yeah, so- so anyway, Zeus is mad that, that they're disrespecting his heir like that, and, uh, <laughs> which, again, he's got hundreds and thousands of heirs. I don't know why he specifically picks this kid, but he does, and he's like, well, guide this baby to an island and make sure he's safe, and at the same time, let's fuck up Argos real bad, because I'm mad that this guy would kill his grandson. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, Jason, why don't you explain what happens to Argos here?
1: Well, Argos has a really bad day.
0: <laughs> they, uh,
1: Zeus pulls out his action figures, you know, in, in his uh, in, in up in Olympus there, and decides to destroy the town. So, sure enough, we get our good friend, the Kraken. And in that, he, uh, of course, floods the city, uh, destroys it. Uh, we see some really good sets that get destroyed, things like this. We see some bad sets, too, but, you know, for the time, there's some pretty good sets and things of like this. And, um... Poseidon just ends up sending out the Kraken, and then the Kraken goes back into his
0: cage. Now, are you aware of the history of the Kraken? The Kraken is not historically a Greek monster, right? Right, right. It's different. They, they decided to change
1: the name to Kraken. At least this is what Ray Harryhausen said, because it sounded cooler.
0: <laughs> yeah, so right here, this is where my classics professor, his head starts spinning, that they literally just change the name of the sea monster in Greek myth, and they name him the Kraken, which, like you said, sounds cooler, but is, in effect, a Norse sea monster. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, my students get the gods mixed up, so uh, Norse, Roman, Greek, it's all it's all the same, right? Yeah, and even worse for you, Jason, the Kraken is played by Mel Gibson. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, i guess i I guess i can't watch clash anymore (laughs) yeah so so anyway argos is completely decimated by the sea monster the kraken and apparently this is like the god's favorite little sea toy whenever they want to destroy a town they they send in the kraken and again this is the kind of thing you see over and over in greek mythology the gods love just being petty and just pissing people off and so yeah we'll just destroy a city one day although there's an especially neat part in this scene where Zeus has, like, these little clay figures of, like, every person on Earth. That's kind of cool. I always like that.
1: Yeah, like I said, there's these collection of action figures.
0: <laughs> yeah. So not only does he destroy this dude, Acrisius' town, he also pulls out the uh, Acrisius action figure and, like, squeezes it and crushes it into dust in his hand. So Zeus is not messing around. You don't screw with his kids. Yeah, and, and the
1: Acrisius death scene is quite fun.
0: So anyway, that's Argo. So everyone's dead in this town, other than this mom and her son, Perseus, who've been cast out to sea. And Zeus guides them gently to this um, this island in the middle of nowhere called Seraphos. And and this is where we get this montage of of Perseus growing up and his mother's breasts, and Perseus learning all these skills and his mother's breasts, and um, Perseus becoming a man. He becomes Harry Hamlin, and then there's some more breasts in there too. As for a part
1: of the movie, I was waiting for Harry Hamlin to put a toga or something on. I was tired of seeing, you know, really white boy uh, skin Harry Hamlin.
0: Yeah, and again, the, the we're we're joking about. There's a lot of nudity in this movie, which is quite shocking for a PG movie. I don't remember this as a kid, and again, it's not like done like a. Uh gratuitously where they're trying to like exploit people. It's really just like a mom breastfeeding her son and walking down the beach with her little boy. But it is, it is kind of shocking when you realize this was like a little PG kids movie.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things with eight, like I was, I mentioned earlier on, on, on social media is that uh, early eighties, there were boobs in every movie and, and, and it didn't matter if they, they fit or not. There were still boobs in every movie before it got uh, to the rating of PG 13.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's one thing we both, we, we were writing down, that, or watching this movie and taking notes independently, and this is something we both focused on, like, wow, there's a lot of boobs in this movie. <laughs> well, there's a lot of nips in the movie, too, but not necessarily always good. Yeah. And they're, again, they're not always good boobs, because it's like Medusa later. <laughs> exactly. Topless Medusas, which is, again, I do not believe she was ever a centerfold. <laughs> well, maybe before
1: becoming, but uh, the other, the other one, of course, the nips are on the good old Kraken. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, we get topless Kraken, and he's also got abs at one point, which I love. <laughs> a ripped Kraken. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so we meet Perseus, our hero again. This is a little boy, and he grows up, and he's Harry Hamlin. And uh, I guess we should talk about Harry Hamlin for a minute here. Harry Hamlin, very. Well known actor in the 80s, especially very Greek looking dude. Perfect choice to play this Perseus, this, uh, this uh, Greek hero. Although I didn't know this. I just read this the other day that he, like, you kind of think he's this guy with his big hair who played these goofy roles, but like he was like a very accomplished academic student. He went to like Yale and he like studied mythology and like he was forever suggesting things in this movie that they should do that would make the story better because he like knew his mythology. So I have to give a little shout out to Harry Hamlin here for being a, uh, much sharper guy than I think people realize. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know some of
1: that. I, uh, I think he did a great role as Perseus as well.
0: Yeah, we'll get to it later, but he had a couple arguments with the producers over ways to portray things later. So, uh, okay, so so we meet Perseus; he's our hero, and now we're going to meet his his uh, arch enemy. This is Calibos. Um, uh, we'll go back up to uh, to the to Mount Olympus, and there's Zeus, and there's one goddess who just bickers with Zeus a lot, and this is Maggie Smith McGonagall herself as uh, Thetis, the goddess of the sea. Yep, yep. She
1: uh, she gives every advantage to her son. He's a he's a little bit entitled and indulged and all this. And um, problem is, is Calibus. Calibus is uh, he likes to hunt and and, he, and crush, kill, destroy everything he sees. So when he ends up he ends up going out and uh, killing the herd of flying horses, all except for one. And
0: um, so he's he's banished by Zeus, forced to live as an outcast, basically. Yeah, and not only does he banish him, but Zeus is like, you know, Thetis, I'm going to make an example out of your son. He's like, you know, my son is awesome. My son's amazing. It's kind of like walk hard here. You're like, wrong kid died. One of these things. Like, your son sucks, Thetis. He's killing Pegasus. He's killing the winged horses. He's just a spoiled brat. So we're going to exile him, and I'm going to turn him into a mutant. And he's like, we're going to deform Calibos into the most hideous looking creature ever with these horns, this weird face, this tail. And this is actually one of my favorite uh, tra- uh, special effects in the movie, this uh, transformation scene where Calibos turns from like a normal looking dude into a monster. But it's all done in shadow. And it's a cool <laughs> effect.
1: Yeah, I was just actually about ready to bring the same thing up. I thought it was, I thought it was really neat, because how, how, I mean, how do you do that? It's not drawn, hand-drawn. You know, there must have been some
0: sort of special figure or something to do that, but yeah, I, I love that scene, too. Yeah, and again, this will be Perseus's enemy, and Thetis is pissed. She's like, how dare Zeus take out his rage on my son? And of course, again, she's a goddess, too. She has the same powers that uh, Zeus does, almost. And so, like, first she pleads with Zeus. She's like, my son, Calibos, was supposed to marry this princess, Andromeda, and Zeus is like, yeah, I don't think so anymore. And so <laughs> and so, Thetis decides she's going to play a little game. And again, all of this is pretty historically sound. This is what these gods do. They just fight and they bicker and they're like little kids in all of the texts. It's one of my favorite things about mythology. And Thetis is like, well, if my son can't marry Andromeda, then nobody is. And she basically curses the town that they're from. And I guess it's this whole thing with no man is going to marry this princess if my son can't. Ha, ha, ha.
1: <laughs> yeah, Andromeda's got to suffer for that, and Calibus is going to suffer from Zeus, and Th- Thetis is going to make Andromeda suffer. Everybody gets to suffer in this movie. It's, it's
0: it's a lot of fun. Yeah, It's just Greek gods having a big slap fight. That's basically this movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now Thetis is really interfering in the story. She's like, well... I have cursed this town. I have made this uh, Joppa—that's the city that her son was in. Joppa is now the curse, the worst place to live. And oh, I think I'll just pick up Perseus from the little action figure playset, and I'll place him over into Joppa. And you get this cool little effect of this hand reaching and dropping Perseus down into the mid, into this amphitheater in the middle of nowhere. And this is where the movie is going to start to take off.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's quite fun. He teleported to a new place. He wakes up and is like, "What the hell?"
0: Okay, so. Perseus wakes up and again he's a full-grown man now and he's looking around he's like where am I I went to sleep on some island and now I'm in this amphitheater in Joppa and he meets this uh, local playwright named Ammon played by Burgess Meredith and I will say all this 100% true to the Perseus myth this is exactly what happens I believe with Perseus he meets Ammon and uh, from here on out though it's going to take some weird turns
1: yeah, and I like, uh, Burg- I mean, Burgess Meredith is perfect. He's a small little role in the movie, but he's just, a, he's perfect in like everything he's in practically. But he comes up and he says, what do you mean you don't know where you are? I, f- I figure it's kind of like the, the line from, uh, uh I can't remember, a dude where's my car, he
0: goes, or no, actually no, it's from a Euro trip where he goes, this is not where I parked my car. <laughs> so you just compared dude Where's my car to Greek mythology. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of ties. And... <laughs> so, yeah, so, so Perseus is now wandering around this strange city wondering where he is, and Zeus, and then we go back to Mount Olympus, and Zeus is pissed. Zeus is like, you did what? You put my son in a strange city? How dare you? And You know, the the proper solution for Zeus would be to pick him up and put him back on the island, but Zeus, again, it's like a they're just doing things for spite at this point. Now, Zeus is like, well, you know, if you put my son in your city, how about we give my son all these magical weapons so he can stop you, Thetis? So all the gods are are, uh, given a task. He's like, give him a sword, give him a shield, give him a helmet. And so we get this big uh, exposition scene where, where Perseus is wandering around and he finds all these magic items that the gods have bestowed upon him.
1: Uh, and these are some of the big things, one of the one of the big draws to the film, again, is just the fact that you get these mysterious, cool weapons and, and armor and all this kind of thing, and it's just kind of like,
0: oh, I want that, you know, I want that as my own. <laughs> now, do you know, in in the movie, um, I'll explain to people, he gets a sword, and the sword can cut through anything. There's a scene that can cut through solid marble, he gets a helmet that can make him invisible, and he gets a shield that's, like, impervious to anything, nothing can penetrate it. Do you know the actual metal that the sword is made out of? I only know this because I used to write this material into my Dungeons and Dragons games. I don't. I would assume maybe something from Olympus, but I, I don't know. It, it's called adamantine, which is adamant is like means uh, permanent. It's like a permanent material that can cut through anything. So it's it's actually a mythology D&D term, uh, adamantine, the sword that can cut through anything. So you're going to say Wolverine versus Perseus? Exactly, yeah. Since we're going, dude, where's my car? We can throw in some X-Men in there as well. <laughs> Well, you know they are kinda of like gods, but anyhow we'll skip past that. Yeah, so you got the voice of reason here, Ammon, this old guy Burgess Meredith, and uh Perseus is like, Well, why did I get these weapons? Why are gods giving me things? And Ammon's like, Here's a hint, Perseus. If gods are giving you things, don't question them, just take them. Yeah.
1: I got the quote here, a divine
0: gift should never be questioned, simply accepted. Yeah, and that's, again, that's a very uh, good life lesson. Do not question if gods are giving you things. Again, if a god, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes, correct? Oh, you stole my line. (laughs) (laughs) See, there's a reason I had you on the show. I knew we were going to agree on all this stuff. (laughs) Well, the one
1: thing that also is unusual about this is the shield talks to him. You
0: know, the the shield is where he gets his message from the gods, basically. So the shield's a talking shield, it seems like. Did they have that in the action figure as well? Did you press a button and the ta- and the like Sir Lawrence Olivier's voice would come out of the shield? <laughs> yeah, and he started. Uh, he started taunting the other gods. <laughs> yes. Now, did they have the gods? See, I, I was not. We were poor. I could not afford these action figures. The Clash of the Titans one, um, Titan ones. Did you? Did you? Did they include the gods as well, or were they just like the uh, the main characters?
1: I think it was just the main. I remember Harry Hamlin and Perseus. I mean, not Pegasus. Sorry. The Um, Harry Hamlin and Pegasus and, uh, the Kraken and Medusa. Um, but I don't remember like the minor characters if they had toys for those. I think they did.
0: Did they have like a little Burgess Meredith figure? (laughs) Yeah, probably. Who knows? He's probably, uh,
1: just doing the same role he does in every other movie, but doing it well. (laughs) Did they have topless Perseus mom? (laughs) That was the, that was the, uh, you had to mail in for that
0: one. (laughs) Yeah. Just send in the box tops to get the topless woman. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about that. <laughs> Okay, so, Perseus has been given all these gifts, and he starts exploring this city of Joppa, which has been cursed by the goddess Thetis. And this is where, um, he goes into this, there's like a marketplace, like a bazaar, and he wanders over there, and he's like, what, what is this city? And like, there's, you know, Captain Exposition, the guard, who's gonna explain everything that's going on. He's like, well, there's a princess up there, Andromeda, and she was supposed to marry this guy, Calabos, he was cursed, he cast out into the swamp. Now she's available to any man, any man can walk in here and marry this woman, but he must answer a riddle, and if he fails the riddle, he's put to death so it's kind of a kind of a dark little town these days, yeah,
1: yeah and even you can tell that her mom
0: is not very excited about this either, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, the mom. Yeah, the mom, her daughter was going to marry this famous prince, and then the gods stepped in, and just just because they hate each other, they screwed up her daughter's life. So, yeah, the mom is not thrilled, but it's this one, this ritual that all these men will come up and, you know, ask for Andromeda's hand, and they, they ask the riddle, they fail the riddle, they're burned alive in front of the whole town, and Perseus is like, why would people do that? And the guard's like, well, she's very beautiful. I'm like, well, okay, got it, now I get it.
1: (laughs) And she was. She was a very beautiful actress, actually. But uh, I did want to take a step back momentarily, if if possible. Um, We talked about the gifts from the gods. And when he comes into town, he actually uh, puts on his helmet, which makes him invisible. But the thing thing that drives me crazy about his helmet making him invisible is you can see his footprints. But if you look all over where he walks, he's walking in dry sand or dry dirt and, and, like, you know uh, things like this and he's leaving
0: footprints in sand like that i, I think the helmet adds about a hundred pounds <laughs> either that or like king kong bundy was playing perseus in those scenes <laughs> Stunt double. oh sure i can't bring in dude where's your car but you can bring in the wwf hey look it's my show i'm making the rules here jason <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so perseus he puts on his helmet of invisibility and he walks He goes up and in the middle of the night he goes up to Andromeda's Tower because he wants to see, he's like, Who is this beautiful woman that everyone's dying to meet? And he goes up and there's this really long extended scene where apparently every night, like she becomes like a ghost. Part of her body, you know, transmogrifies out and she is flown, like this giant vulture flies down and he's got a cage, and she comes and gets in the cage and she's flown out to the swamps where again her betrothed lover Calabos is out there and he every day he creates a riddle for her and it's like an impossible riddle nobody's ever gonna get this these are like New York Times crosswords riddles Sunday Sunday crosswords <laughs> yeah these are the Sunday crosswords so perseus sees every night that andromeda gets flown away to learn these riddles and he goes back to Ammon, the old guy and he's like how how can i find where she's going i want to i want to marry her like he apparently pops a little perseus boner right when he sees her although we should say him spying on her in her in her in her room at night when she's sleeping a little creepy right well it goes even further than that he's not only walking into her room invisible you know perving on her but he also goes up and he touches her hair oh no he's i'm gonna bring in manos the hands of fate now he's torgo he's fondling her hair (laughs) don't displease the master (laughs) must find flying horse (laughs) yeah so perseus is like how can i follow this vulture and get out there because i'm perving on this girl and i really want to meet her and so Ammon's like, "Well, there's one way. Turns out that there's this flying horse named Pegasus and no one's ever tamed him. He's untamable. But if we tame him, <laughs> maybe we could fly on him." So, and Perseus is like, "Yeah, let's do that."
1: Yeah, and and of course the thing is that another thing that drives me crazy about this movie, a little little pet peeves here and there, is that Perseus hangs out at this one little pond out there, right? And and sure, he might not have been tamed before, but just hangs out at this one pond so like it seems like everybody knows that he's there.
0: Yeah, it's you think it would be easy to tame? Although this is the water scene, I think we talked about this earlier, where Perseus goes and scoops up some water in his helmet and feeds it to to uh, Pegasus. Yeah. And, yeah, Jason and I both wrote this in our notes. He's got this helmet of invisibility, and he's scooping up water and giving it to Pegasus. And we're like, wouldn't the water be invisible? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing, another thing it gives me in this
1: scene, too, is when he's getting ready to capture Pegasus, right? He's going into the invisibility helmet. Great, okay, good way to sneak up on a horse. But then he decides, after putting on the helmet, to pick up the lasso.
0: <laughs> yes. So the lasso is not invisible, but Perseus is. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then when he finally captures Pegasus, well, spoiler, he captures Pegasus,
1: but when he finally captures Pegasus, he ties Pegasus to this tiny little log in the middle of the desert. It's not tied down. It's not one that's a tree that used to be. It's just this little log, and Pegasus is like, yep, I'm captured now.
0: (laughs) Yes. Okay, this is where I will uh, speak up for my classics professor here, and I will say, again, in Greek mythology, Perseus had nothing to do with Pegasus. This is the one thing that really, really chapped his butt, my professor, because he's like, in mythology, Perseus had winged sandals. I think they were a gift to him from Hermes, something like that, and he could just fly around, which would look really goofy in a movie. And so Ray Harryhausen's like, well, we'll just throw him on Pegasus and he can fly around. But in Greek mythology, there's a hero named Bellerophon who flies Pegasus. Perseus has nothing to do with him other than, as we'll see later, Pegasus was born out of the blood of Medusa. But again, this is where the myths really start getting mixed up right here.
1: Yeah. Well, and the thing with Pegasus, too, not necessarily in regards to myth, but this is, again, I, I briefly mentioned Ray Harryhausen earlier is that I mean, the, the stop motion on, on Pegasus is, is pretty intense. It's um, Like you said, it's choppy in some areas, things like this, but you're talking about a flying horse back when you know you didn't have this kind of stuff in movies, and you see that kind of stuff, you see a flying horse going off with, with uh, Perseus on his back, is just like, wow, I want
0: one! Yeah, no, I was going to say that I would argue that might be the best Harryhausen effect in this movie, which is impressive considering the Kraken and Medusa are in here too, but the Pegasus one I think just looks awesome.
1: Yeah, I'll argue Medusa, though.
0: That's fair. I mean, it gets, it's a uh, six of one, half dozen of the other. But the Pegasus one, it's, it's really funny when I watch it now because I'm thinking, why would Pegasus, like, it? I'm explaining it to people who maybe have never seen it. Pegasus is flying in the air, and he's got these huge wings, but he's running, too. So it's this odd effect of him running, like, in midair, like Curly and the Three Stooges, kind of, as he's flying around. Yeah. And I was wondering that. I'm like, why would he run? That wouldn't make sense. And my daughter just happened to be watching this movie the other day, and she's like, "Well, Dad, if they had Pegasus's legs just hanging there, he would look like a mosquito. He'd be flying around with the legs just dangling." So, and I've seen Harryhausen actually defend that as well. He's like, "I just liked the way it looked with the legs running. I thought it looked cooler."
1: Yeah, and he actually has a little bit. I watched on the uh, uh, making of stuff, and he talked about the wings on Pegasus actually being a challenge because originally the wings were much smaller. But they said there's no way a horse can get, you know, airborne with tiny wings. So he made these giant, massive wings for the Pegasus, which makes it look a lot more natural
0: to me, at least. No, no, I agree. I, I, I saw that interview as well. That he had these little butterfly wings, like when they would animate Pegasus in movies prior to this. He always had these little baby wings. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's gonna work. Yep.
1: Yeah. So we go back into the swamp now, or we go to the swamp of Calibus.
0: Yeah, here we go, okay, big long chase scene where Perseus is flying after the vulture who's carrying Andromeda, he's following her, and they go to the swamp, this is where Calibos, the exiled prince, lives, and again, he's this horrible creature, and Perseus kind of lands, and he has his little invisible helmet, and he walks around with his 500-pound stunt double with his giant footprints... Yeah, <laughs> And he sees, he sees the riddle, the next riddle, and Calibos, of course, gives, writes down this riddle, and the riddle for the next night's bonfire is this ring that Calibos has on his hand, which is, that's kind of a dick move. Nobody's ever going to answer the ring on Calibos, is the answer. Mm-hmm. What's in my pockets? <laughs> yes, exactly. So... So Perseus learns what the riddle is going to be, what the answer is going to be and he's fooled. He's fooled the system. He's beaten the system. This is like cracking uh blackjack in Vegas. He's figured out the code. But before Perseus leaves, Calibos sees him, sees the footprints, the giant's fat footprints walking away. And Calibos is like, "Hmm, somebody's watching me." And we get this neat little uh fight out in the swamp between Calibos. He like sneaks up and attacks Perseus and this is one of the effects right here I've always thought, even as a kid, I don't think it stands out that well, the animated Calibos. What do you think about him?
1: Uh, I think it's, it's better than what it could have been because originally, once again, I go back to the interview, is that uh, originally they were going to do Calibos entirely uh, stop motion, but then they got the actor for the close-ups and like this. So I think the combination of the ability to have the close-ups and the stop motion, that's what kind of throws it for a little bit of a... Uh, not a loop, but just doesn't seem quite right.
0: Yeah, again, it's it's a weird mix of, yeah, animation and real life, yeah. It, but anyway, Perseus fights Calibos, and Calibos is much stronger than him, but Perseus has the magic sword. Perseus, he cuts Calibos' hand off, and in the, in the fight, he ends up losing his helmet. Again, the most powerful, beloved item in the universe, this magical uh, invisibility helmet. Perseus basically drops in the swamp and just decides not to look for it.
1: Well, yeah, and that's the, I think I brought that up with you before, before our podcast here, is that the this, this swamp is like, what, three feet deep, if that? You know, he knows approximately where it's at. This
0: helmet is like uber powerful. And he's like, eh, you know, I'll just get something else maybe. Yeah. So anyway, if we have any listeners out in Joppa, go out into the swamp and maybe you can find that helmet and it would probably fetch a pretty good price on eBay. I bet it's probably still out there. <laughs> you just, just start trolling for it. Yeah. No reserve price.
1: bring out your old metal detector
0: (laughs) so anyway Perseus has saved the day he defeats Calibos and we'll, we'll come back Calibos will come back later don't worry about him so Perseus goes back to Joppa and it's the next night when Andromeda is being presented with a suitor and you know she's in the church they're in this church the temple of the goddess Thetis and Perseus strides in you know the big man he's like you know I've been I've been perving on your daughter I've been touching her hair probably fapping too i'd like to marry her now
1: <laughs> and so
0: yeah the daughters yeah, the, like andromeda's like no like don't please no you'll never solve this riddle and perseus is like yeah try me and so she asked the riddle and he's like well look it's the uh ring on Calibos's hand and he actually literally pulls out Calibos's hand that he cut off throws it down and says how you like me now and just like that perseus and andromeda are going to be married Yep. Yep. You know, I love it. Love
1: it. Uh, maybe first sight there. She recognized Perseus. She, I'm wondering if she recognized
0: him from a dream, though. Or did she recognize him from the fact he creeped on her and touched her hair while she was lying there? <laughs> well, it turns out she has a high tech security system. So she was just reviewing <laughs> the footage, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're that guy that stands over me with his pants half down. I know you. <laughs> the dentist. <laughs> yes. So anyway, they're going to get married. And this is I love this. I love the uh <laughs> the chutzpah here of the mom. So Calibos is furious that Percy that Perseus has cut off his hand and has humiliated him. And Calibos comes back and prays to his mother in the temple. He's like, "Punish them!" And the mom's like, "Well, I can't. That's Zeus's son. I can't do anything about it." And and Calibos is like, "Punish all everyone he loves. Punish Andromeda. Kill them all." And the mom's like, "Yeah, okay." And so, as luck would have it. Cassiopeia, Andromeda's mom, will immediately give Thetis a reason to destroy their city. Where This is where we cut to the next scene, and again, this is the wedding of Perseus, Andromeda. And the mom, Cassiopeia, is like, I welcome all of you to my kingdom where I give away my daughter today, the most beautiful creature in the world, even more beautiful than the goddess Thetis herself. And again, that's one other thing you learn about Greek mythology. There's many, 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 many stories in mythology about how do not compare yourself to a Greek goddess and say you are more beautiful than them. It will not end well. And not only do they do it, but they do it in Thetis's own temple. And this is not going to go well.
1: Yeah. She does not
0: like this one bit.
1: Uh, so, so she t- decides to take her wrath out on them as best she can. So she just, just destroys... The, t- the statue in the temple there, which barely misses Cassiopeia, or Cassiopeia you know, and of course she's pissed. You know, she, better, she says, you better recant
0: this, take this back, and apologize for the injury in Calibus, or we're going to take your daughter away. I don't think she even gives them the opportunity to apologize. She just says, basically, you have insulted me, you have insulted my son, and is like, no, please, goddess Thetis, the one we worship, I cannot believe I just dissed you in your own temple. And Thetis is like, this is unforgivable. She's like, in 30 days, you will take your daughter and you will chain her to a rock. And uh, by the way, she must be a virgin. So haha, Perseus, none of that. (laughs) And if you don't do that, we will send the Kraken and it will destroy Joppa just like it destroyed Argos. (laughs) Ha ha ha. You know, Thetis is up on Olympus going, mirror, mirror on the wall. And then the answer is Andromeda. So suffice it to say, Andromeda's wedding day could not have gone worse. Not only does she not get married, her mom is insulted the, the goddess. The city's about to be destroyed. She and her husband do not get to have sex tonight. If you ever wondered how someone becomes a bridezilla, this is the, this is the event that would do it right here.
1: <laughs> yeah. And poor Cassiopeia is finally saying, hey, my daughter's getting married. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> God
0: damn it. What did I do? <laughs> okay, so the Kraken is now set to come and destroy the city in 30 days. And so Perseus is racking his brain. He's like, I want to get some. Like, how, how do I stop the Kraken so I can bang my wife? Like, this is this sucks. And so Ammon, the old playwright, says, well, nobody can stop the Kraken. He's an immortal. He's like a titan. Like, the, the gods design these, or these. I think titans, if I recall, are like even above gods or like equivalents of gods or something like that. They can take
1: him on. I'm not sure about their about their mortality, though.
0: Okay, so it would be a good fight. We'll just say that. And so Ammon's like, it's no man alive knows how to stop this Kraken. And, and Perseus like, but sex! And so Ammon's like, well, <laughs> okay, so so the, um, no man knows how to stop this guy, this Kraken. But maybe there's a woman who knows how to stop him. So this is where we start going into all the fun little Perseus myth.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And, of course, the uh, good old Stygian witches are coming up here. You know, the the yummy, like-to-eat human flesh, really uh, beautiful, uh, lots of boobs, uh, Stygian witches, right? No, no, no boobs. The boobs here
0: would be bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, to explain what we're talking about, there's these creatures in Greek mythology, I think they're called the... G-R-A-E-A or something like that they are known as the Stygian witches in this movie and they are three blind women like seers and they're you know hundreds of years old they're all straggly and again this is not good boob material you don't want them in this scene (laughs) but they're blind and they have stringy hair and it's kind of a catch-22 when you have to go visit the Stygian witches because A. they know everything they're like the smartest women around they're like the Oracle almost but B. they're cannibals and they eat you so it's kind of a rough situation here that Perseus has to go visit these Stygian witches, and Ammon even tells him he's like, "Well, you know, we've sent messengers out them before, out to them before, and the messengers always die. So it doesn't really work out that well for us."
1: Well, that makes sense. Let's just get going then. If, if, if nobody's come back, ah,
0: no problem. <laughs> we're we're good. We, got the, we still got a sword and a shield, right? Yeah, but no Pegasus. Pegasus, at a certain point, gets kidnapped by Calibos. Calibos is still on Perseus's butt. He's kidnapped Pegasus. So Perseus and a bunch of men and I think Andromeda and Ammon. I don't know why we're dragging Ammon around with us because he's like 80, but we're dragging him yeah. along and they're going to go out and visit the Stygian witches.
1: Yeah, they say, uh, we, we have a flying horse to Pegasus three days. would be no more than three hours. Oh, there goes that plan. Calibus goes out to good old Pegasus Lake, which is, uh, again, apparently everybody knows where where it <laughs> yeah. is. He whips Pegasus, and then he uh, throws. They 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 capture him basically. And then Perseus says, "Men come up
0: and go, hey, come on, Pegasus, come here, boy, come here, um, Pegasus." <laughs> the the hardest creature in the universe to find only hangs out at one lake. Everybody knows about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Perseus and Andromeda ride off to find the witches.
1: And Andromeda seems to actually have a mind of her own. She has thoughts, you know? She's
0: actually a pretty strong character here. I have kind of forgot about that. Yeah, she's not just a trophy wife. Well, I mean, it just proves she wants to have sex as much as Perseus does.
1: <laughs>
0: well, they're young. The lifespan back in ancient Greece might have been a little shorter, you know? Yeah, she's like, I'm 19. This is middle age, Mom. I haven't had sex yet. <laughs> we need to solve this. Don't you want a grandchild? <laughs> Yeah, and the mom's like, I saw the start of this movie. Grandchildren are not the end-all, be-all. They cause a lot of problems, young lady. <laughs> now, do you want the pleasure of introducing our next character, or...? I'll take this one. All right. Um, so... Perseus and his men are wandering off through the no man's land trying to find these Stygian witches and they're lost and they're Again up against the gun because in 30 days the Kraken's going to come destroy the city And so this is where Zeus forever meddling Zeus decides I'm going to influence the story a little bit And he's like, why don't we give Perseus a messenger? Why don't we give him some help from the gods and all the other gods are like, no, how about not? And Zeus is like, yeah, but I think I'm going to (laughs) Zeus wants Athena Athena the goddess of wisdom who forever has a little owl perched on her soldier on her shoulder this is the symbol of Athena in Greek mythology Zeus is like give him your owl and she's like fuck that I'm not giving him my owl (laughs) so she goes to Hephaestus who is the blacksmith of the gods and she has him build a little mechanical owl which is like a perfect representation of her owl and this is where we meet Bubo the Owl, who flies down this little mechanical R2-D2-looking thing. Just kind of the comic relief of this movie. He's going to fly, and he's going to meet Perseus and their men. And he will again become the beloved symbol of this movie to many kids in the 80s. Yeah, now, that's one toy
1: I remember I did have a Bubo. I didn't bring him up earlier, but Bubo was cool, man. Bubo, Bubo was the little GPS of the uh, ancient Greeks. <laughs> did Bubo have nipples on his toy? <laughs> under the feathers, under the feathers, man. <laughs> Wait, were you perving on Bubo?
0: <laughs> I wore my invisible helmet. <laughs> okay, and I I just have to say, I'll let you explain after this, but I always thought, like I said, my classics professor hated this movie so much, and I thought he would hate Bubo, because Bubo, if you watch this movie, you realize there's no way that thing was in Greek mythology, this little mechanical owl. And I always assumed this would be one of the things that really stuck in his craw. But surprisingly, it wasn't. He would always say, he's like, well, at least Bubo's kind of based on mythology. Like, Athena had an owl, and, like, Hephaestus could make anything. So, like, I could see that at least that was based in mytholo- mythological teaching. So he was actually okay with Bubo. But then he'd go like, but Calabos, they just made him up. There's no Calabos in mythology. So. <laughs> so Bubo was okay on the okay list. Calabos was not. Check one <laughs> um, yeah, Bubo was cool too. I mean
1: Bubo just I mean he, like you said, he's the comic relief. He clicks, he wheezes, he bumps into things, he falls over, he deactivates, reactivates. I mean, he does the whole thing, but but like I said, he's a little GPS. He leads Perseus and Andromeda straight to the uh, to the uh, stygian witches. Yep. and we got one of our first senses of romance right here in the, in the idea that Perseus holds Andromeda's
0: hand. Wow, that's a good first move, especially since they're already married. <laughs> <laughs> Things move slower back then. Okay, I, I have to say, a lot of people will criticize, and I've read reviews, that they, they criticize Bubo, saying he was a rip-off of R2-D2 from Star Wars, and just for people who don't know, this movie, this came out four years after Star Wars, so that would have been fresh in people's minds, that Bubo was really just like a uh, mythological R2-D2, although... I'm assuming you saw some of the same interviews where Harryhausen denies that?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And and it's actually his uh, his coworker that did most of the creation on, on Bubo. Um, and they, they just put it in near the end. But yeah, I wouldn't compare him to RTD2 by any means. RTD2 actually had uh, ability to do things other than fly and, and loop-de-loops.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, and, and I think they said they had prepared uh, Bubo long before there was ever a Star Wars. This movie was in development for like 10 years. So, again, even though a lot of people, even a lot of reviews I read now even just say that they put in Bubo just to appeal to the R2-D2 crowd, I can see there's probably some functional reasons to have a mechanical owl. It's probably easier to animate. Like, it would be much tougher to animate a real owl, so I can actually see why they would do that.
1: Oh, yeah, well, and Athena won't get rid of her, her, her owl either.
0: Yeah, these gods, man, they're just difficult.
1: <laughs> well, I wonder if there's ever going to be repercussions for Athena also for disobeying Zeus directly.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's an odd thing because they're all gods and they all have immortal powers and can change time and space, yet there's a, hi- a clear hierarchy. So like at what point can they defy Zeus and stand up to him? It's just it's just weird like when they're all fighting over stuff. Yeah. Okay, so why don't you lead us through the Stygian Witches? This is one of my favorite scenes in the uh, movie here. Oh yeah, I love the Stygian witches.
1: Like you said before, these are three eyeless witches, you know, and they do have some good makeup on them, makes them look like they basically have these just glossed or not just these, you know, dead eyes that are covered, but they have a glass orb that allows them to see. So they uh, see Perseus walk in, and they realize that this young man's walking in, and everybody's clamoring for this eyeball because they want to see this young stud. You know, say, "Come on closer, Perseus. It's okay. You know, we can't hear you." You know, of course, as Perseus moves forward, this human hand comes out of the pot and just kind of moves around in this pot that they have boiling, uh, some form of liquid. <laughs> hand comes out and moves, and goes, and they push it back into the pot. So uh, Bubo flies in, does his thing. He actually is useful. He steals the eye. Way to go, Bubo. Yeah, I got Bubo. Bubo was our hero. Okay, So Perseus makes the plan obvious you know, by yelling out to Bubo, saying, hey, grab the eye. So the witches are like, huh, what? Boobo, what? And by that time, the eye is gone. So the witches grovel around looking for the eye, and Perseus says, I'll give it back to you if you answer my questions. So they, he asks this question, and I'll hand it back over to you in a second here, but it says, how can a mortal man face and defeat a titan? And at this point, the witches just start cackling and laughing and, and, and give their answer. Do you remember what that was? No mortal can defeat the kraken.
0: Ha, 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 ha. So not even a hundred men could defeat a kraken or a titan. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, one thing here: the Stygian witches. Again, these are based in Greek mythology. I know a lot about them. Uh, in mythology, do you know what other thing they had, Jason, behind besides the eye? Oh, uh, the string of fate. No, they uh, they also shared one tooth. Oh yeah. Yeah, these three blind sisters. They had one eye they had to share so they could see, and they also had one tooth that they had to pass around to eat. Which I don't know how much of a difference one tooth is going to make, but okay. But yeah, so there's no tooth in this. But yeah, so Bubo takes the eye, and Perseus says, uh, alright, I have your eye, tell me how to defeat the, uh, the Kraken. And they say there's only one way, and that is if another Titan can stand up against this Titan. And so they said there's this, uh, Medusa, this, uh, Hideous woman with snakes for hair and this the ugliest face ever. And any more anything that sees her, living or dead, will turn to stone. She's so ugly. And they said, get the head of Medusa, show it to the Kraken, it will turn to stone, and you will defeat it. And that's the only known way in the universe. And then they point out, by the way, you might want to have to kill Medusa because she's not just going to give you her head.
1: Yeah. Well, and and you, uh, they're also her blood is deadly venom as well.
0: Yeah. And this is where one of the one of the uh, one of the, uh, the Stygian witches screams out her little phrase of glory. Here, you know which phrase I'm talking about. This is the Clash of the Titans line: a Titan against a Titan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have to uh, I have to explain that line. This is the one of the big moments in the movie where one of the witches realizes the Kraken is going to uh, face Medusa, and she screams, "A Titan against a Titan," although. In theory, Medusa was not a Titan in Greek mythology. And not only was the Kraken not a Titan, he wasn't even Greek. So this is the kind of line that the mythology professors would really have a problem with. Where it's, although I will, I will defend it by saying I don't think she's saying a Titan in the classic sense. I think she's saying a Titan as in something giant and powerful. So it's one of these things where you get the words mixed up. They probably shouldn't use a Titan against a Titan because that word means something else in Greek
1: yeah I, I agree actually you know and um, and the thing is is that uh, if, if he is able to use Medusa's head you know of course we're talking about two you know, like you said very large dangerous creatures I mean deadly creatures going against each other I think that's the more the the big point is that it's a Titan versus Titan a
0: big strong boss versus a boss yeah again and to go back to my, my pro wrestling analogy this is like Wrestlemania this is like Hulk Hogan against Roddy Piper here this is a big moment for them Man, WWF, I used to watch this stuff. Same time I watched these movies. movies. Okay, so here we go. We are about to meet Medusa, and Medusa is one of the biggest characters in this movie, maybe the biggest character, and uh, they go into her backstory, and this is the one that really cracks me up with Medusa. Um, I'll I'll say this because I have the mythology background. I know her story. In real life, or in mythology, again, I don't know how real life that is, but in mythology... Medusa was a beautiful maiden, and at a certain point, Poseidon, the god, decided he was going to have sex with her, so he takes her to a god's temple, and he rapes her inside the temple, and what happens is, again, this is Greek mythology, perhaps the not, not, not the most progressive place around, the gods are angry that Medusa had sex in a temple, not to mention that she was raped. They don't care. They just were mad that she had sex in a temple. They think it was disrespectful. So they basically slut shame her, and they turn her ugly. This is the story of Medusa, where they're giving her snakes for hair and a, a hideous face. And this is her punishment for daring to have sex and be raped in a temple. And it's a very dicey story. Um, one could argue that she basically could have started the Me Too movement. That <laughs> Medusa would have been a perfect founder for that. She did not go over well her story. But in the movie, they soft pedal it a little bit here where they say where Ammon is explaining what happened to medusa and he's like oh poseidon seduced her in a temple Mm -hmm. and i'm like it's not quite the same word but i like that you tell you softened it a little bit but again the whole story is the same that the god slut shamed her and turned her into a beast so this is the story of poor medusa who should have a little more sympathy than she gets (laughs) well it says pg you know
1: seduced has got to be used but, yeah, it was in uh, Aphrodite's temple is what, they, is what they did in the movie and stuff. So you can see why Aphrodite might be a little upset. I think the moral of the story is that you don't want to
0: make the gods do anything petty. You know, don't, don't piss off the gods in any way, shape or form. Yet she wasn't mad that Poseidon raped somebody inside her temple. The god? Yeah. Or in, in the original well, yeah, one? Yeah, I mean, in the myth, Aphrodite, they take it out on Medusa. What happened to the god who raped her? Like, did he just get a slap on the wrist? Is that how that worked? Well, you know, it was a different time back then and <laughs> Zeus is floating around just just you know, spreading his seed. Okay. So anyway, I yeah, will get off that subject. But this is the story of Medusa. She lives out in exile on this island all by herself. She's just hideous. Nobody can look at her. She's so ugly you'll turn to stone. And when they do meet her, we're going to meet her in a couple minutes. Like it is a really cool effect and I would argue the first horror movie that a lot of kids might have seen in that era. Like this is a legitimately scary horror scene when we see Medusa.
1: Oh yeah, I mean Medusa. Like I mentioned earlier, this is one of when you when you argue for Pegasus, I'll argue for Medusa. I mean, she's just the way she moves, and just the fact the way she looks and everything like this. This isn't what I would picture Medusa as normally, but from from there on out, I always pictured her this way, you know, with the snake body and the head with the uh, snakes coming off of it, and this this hideous glare and all this. And she moved, like you said, this is a great example of when the stop motion works really well
0: because she's creepy looking when she moves yeah she just does not move based on the law of physics it's just one of these things you kind of have to see it if you've never seen it before again most people my age know this movie if you're younger you've never seen the original medusa scene it's just uh so weird and ethereal and just off-putting she just it's just jerky and awkward and and okay let's let's get up there so perseus learns he has to go slay the gorgon medusa and cut her head off oh i should point out in greek mythology there were three gorgons but in this in this movie there's only one Where, did you know that there's three of them I did. Yeah. So, uh, Perseus has to go and she lives on the Isle of the Dead and they go to this river and it's like the river sticks and they have to cross it. And this is where we meet, uh, Karen, the ferryman for the dead, a really cool effect in the movie. He's this ferryman that takes people, their souls back and forth to the afterlife. And again, this is all based on Greek mythology. This part's all pretty realistic. Even, my classics professor would admit this whole segment of the movie is really cool—the Karen scene—and they, uh, what do they do? They give a coin to this like a skeleton dude to ferry them across the river.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they go across the river. They normally bring the to the the land of the dead, which is what confused me. So it makes me question: Is Medusa dead, or do they just want to shove her
0: away somewhere so far away that she couldn't cause chaos? You know, that is a good point. If it's the Isle of the Dead, why is she there, and why is she so successful? We get to the island, there's all these men turned to stone. How many people are popping by the Isle of the Dead? <laughs> well you know sometimes the 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 boat gets a little or the the, you know Sharon gets a little bit uh sidetracked goes to the wrong place you know (laughs) they were thinking they were going to a to a uh, Olive garden (laughs) so so Karen sometimes is drinking like the Exxon Valdez captain and he goes to the wrong island (laughs) you know it's just a just it's an honest simple mistake (laughs) (laughs) yeah so anyway all the Perseus I think five of his men are ferried across or how many I wrote it down here the, the exact numbers are very important here. Perseus and five soldiers cross the uh, River Styx, and it's a really eerie scene with the skeleton dude in the mist, and they end up on the Isle of the Dead. And this is where they're searching around, and there's like they're looking for Medusa, and this is a very tense scene. And there's like runes, and you know, I think you pointed out in your notes, they wouldn't really have ancient Greek runes yet, but apparently they have them in the movie here.
1: <laughs> well, you know, maybe she turned the runes to stone, you know, and... <laughs> Just the, 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 maybe the invisible helmet came into play somehow
0: yeah. so people were perving on Medusa <laughs> <in their fingers. laughs> so, so yeah so they get out there and there's statues all over of men that have turned to stone and this is where we meet another one of the uh, our fantastic Greek creatures Ray Harryhausen creatures A. Uh, the two headed dog jumps out and they get attacked by this, this uh, completely stop motion animated two headed dog
1: Yeah, they were going to base this off of Cerebus, the three-headed dog originally. But uh, one of the things with stop motion, and and Ray Harehausen brings this up, is that doing hair in stop motion is very difficult. And if you look back at, like, King Kong and things like this, you can see when he's, like, on top of the tower, you can see the hair is kind of, like, jerking around here and there. And that's what he said he kind of ran into with this dog, um, this this two-headed dog. And so they they kind of changed up their tactics to, to play it. And unfortunately, I agree with you. This does come across as being one of the times that stop motion doesn't necessarily work as well.
0: Yeah, and it's funny you say that about the hair. I didn't know that. But I do remember when uh, Monsters, Inc. came out and Pixar, they created Sully, well, all the blue monster with the hair. And at the time, they said that was their most impressive animation feat they'd ever done because hair is like almost impossible. Yeah. So I, I can actually see that, yeah. The, but this is the the two headed dog again. In Greek mythology, you have Cerberus, the three headed dog who guards the uh, who guards Hades. They couldn't do that in the movie, so they make it a two headed dog. Which, to their credit, actually there is a two headed dog in Greek mythology called Dioskalos, And in the end credits, they even say that's Dioscalos. So they actually got it right. So again, my my myth professor would tip his cap to this one. They actually did it accurate here. You can blame Harry Hamlin on that. <laughs> yes. So anyway, Dioscalos takes out one or two of the men, and uh, her Perseus ends up killing it with a sword, and it's a, again, it's kind of corny looking. It's the one effect that I don't think holds up real well, but it's okay because we're about to get to the effect that really holds up well, and that's Medusa.
1: Yeah, yeah. One thing about the, before we go to Medusa with the uh, sword, which cracked me up when I watched the movie this time, is there's a boa constrictor wrapped around Perseus' sword. You know, a boa constrictor, scary, scary, you know. Does Perseus have a fear of snakes? And then when he finally does get his his sword that will cut through anything, where does he stab that two-headed dog? Right in the butt.
0: (laughs) It's a butt shot. (laughs) You you split split it in another place. (laughs) So so wait, so Perseus is going to take on Medusa, who's unkillable, yet he's terrified because there's a boa constrictor there? Yeah, you know, he was afraid of the snakes, I don't think he's in the right place. Well, it does tie in with Raiders of the Lost Ark then, so I guess it makes sense. Mm, yeah, I don't see Sala anywhere around them. Well, Sala's one of the statues. Medusa turned into stone when he was perving on her. <laughs> you mean the statue that, that uh, Perseus knocked over as he walked in? Yeah, oops. Oops, <laughs> crash, oops, sorry. Okay, so here we go. One of the great scenes. And again, to a kid who was seven, eight, you know, nine, ten years old in the early eighties. This is a terrifying scene. This is, like I said, the first horror movie I think a lot of kids would have seen where Perseus is down in Medusa's lair and there's flickering lights all over the place and it's like there's shadows. And, um, Medusa's kind of lurking. You can hear her. She's got this, like a rattlesnake sound effect. You can hear her tail. And she kind of lurches out of the shadows at one point. And, again, just the way she moves, she doesn't even have legs because she's a serpent underneath. And she has to crawl, and she's topless. And, again, it's all in shadows. And you see a lot of, like, just silhouette of her against the wall. Just genuinely unnerving scene here.
1: Well, and and if anything else, one thing that doesn't get recognized as much as it should is just the lighting in and of itself. Because the, the environment, if it was lit in a bright room and things like this, um, it wouldn't have nearly the effect. The, the the darks, the reds, the you know the the light from the torches coming off the walls. It just like you said, it just makes Medusa look you know that much more menacing.
0: Yeah, and you never really get a straight on shot of her face until there's one scene where she turns someone to stone and her eyes turn green and she looks right at the camera. And I could not have been the only kid alive at seven wondering if I was going to turn to stone at that moment. I'm like, this sucks. Like, no, I don't want to see her face. But yeah, they, they hide her face. It's really impressive.
1: I was a far more mature 10 year old, so I knew that I wouldn't turn to
0: stone. Yeah, see, I needed those three extra years of wisdom to know that. <laughs> So anyway, Medusa takes out her. I think Perseus is down there with two of his men. She shoots one of them in the back. She's got this bow. She kills him. This other guy, he she turns to stone. And then it's just her against Perseus. And it's a uh, kind of a cat and mouse game. She's kind of stalking him. And he's trying to use his shield to use as a reflection where he can look at her and see where she is. And apparently, I don't know, loophole here where if you see her reflection, it doesn't work. I don't know if that would really be the case.
1: Well, the thing that drives me crazy, too, is, is that Perseus walks into her lair. Right, he's walking onto the island. He knows Medusa's there. He knows she turns people to stone. And at first he walks into the island, and he's not hes not even using the shield. Then they get into her chambers there, and he's walking around with the shield just down over his nose and mouth and you know, the rest of him. But his eyes are,
0: like, looking around like, where is she? <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work, Perseus. That's like, like when you're on a plane and the oxygen mask comes down, and you just put it over, like, part of your nose but not the whole nose. That's basically <laughs> what he's doing.
1: So Medusa walks in. She's got her uh, bow and arrow as her weapon of choice. She's been shooting guys left and right. And then, um, you know, Perseus is looking around. And then here's where it gets kind of a little bit um, uh, unusual in his choice. The shield talks to Perseus again. You know, he does this thing. And what he does is he says, oh, well, the most obvious thing to do is this shield that's protecting me,
0: let's just throw it on the statue across,
1: the way, across from me and hope it lands right in the arms.
0: Yeah, well, that's part of the uh, the action figure set where <laughs> the magic shield you could throw it and it would stick to things apparently. <laughs> it's got a sticky, a sticky side. Yeah. So yeah, so we get this thing where Medusa thinks she's stalking Perseus's. Uh, his, 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 she thinks she sees his face. She thinks she's stalking him. It's really his reflection. In a very awesome, tense 1981 little kid movie moment, we have. I think the first beheading ever in a PG-rated movie where Perseus reaches out, cuts off Medusa's head, a very graphic scene. It goes flying off, you know, Pamela Voorhees style from Friday the 13th. And then she starts clutching at her head and falling down and like writhing. And I was reading that the censors had a really big problem with the scene, which it didn't cross my mind until I just read that the other day that, Again, this was the first beheading scene in a movie and they were dead set. They were not going to cut her head off because the censors said, if you do that, we can't show this movie to kids. It won't be PG. And especially, I think, in England, a beheading was an automatic X rating in England at the time. Did you read that?
1: No, I did not know that.
0: Yeah, so apparently what happened is I Harry Hamlin, like I said, he was a big mythological buff, and he was the one that said he really fought for this. He said, you know, why even give me a sword if I'm not going to cut her head off? And B, if I have to hold the head up to, you know, the Kraken, well, how am I going to get the head off the body? Like, you have to be head. But I think the producers were going to have him kill her with a shield. That was their plan. And Perseus really dug in, or uh, Harry Hamlin, really dug in his heels and said he refused to because it was not befitting of the Greek myth. So we really have to give Harry Hamlin's knowledge of mythology and just kind of being an ass of just digging his heels in that why we got this awesome moment here. I would definitely say thank you to that. Yeah, so he cuts off the head, and he holds it up or puts it in a bag, and he walks outside, and I I will give another Harry Hamlin trivia moment that I just read that apparently there was some famous statue at the time back in Greek mythology called Perseus holding up the head of Medusa, and Harry Hamlin, like, owned a replica of it or something. He was a big fan of it, and he's like, I want to recreate that statue. I want to walk outside, and I want to hold this head up to the camera, and it's going to be this really cool moment. And the producers were like, no, we don't have time for that. We don't have the budget. We're not going to do that. And, like, again, he, like, threatened to walk off the movie because they wouldn't do his scene. And so, basically, I don't know if you read this, but he pulled a cameraman aside one day. He's like, just me and you. We'll go out. It'll take five minutes. Just film me walking towards the camera and holding this head up. And he did. And, again, it became the iconic shot of this movie, all because Harry Hamlin just in his love and respect of Greek mythology.
1: That and the fact that Harry Hamlin was basically being a Greek god and just saying,
0: this is the way it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, he had the power. They'd filmed 80% of the movie. But yeah, so, but I've read that he was kind of difficult to work with. But that's one of the stories that sometimes difficult produces good results. And so we get this iconic shot of Harry Hamlin walking to the camera, holding up Medusa's head, and he has slayed her. And again, just one of these really great scenes of early 80s cinema.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of the iconic. I mean, the whole Medusa scene for me. I mean, the movie is fantastic in and of itself, but the the Medusa scene is what really makes it, you know, pushes it over the top as being one that I'll always remember and holds a special place for me.
0: Yeah, and again, what people might not remember if they haven't seen this movie in a while is that's not even the big showdown. We are about to get the big showdown now. Between between uh, Perseus and the scorpions? Well, okay, I was we'll jump ahead. Okay, I'll let you describe the scorpion scene. I will say... When I was a kid, this next scene is Calibos's last stand. He's going to create these giant scorpions. They're going to fight Perseus. When I was a kid, this was my favorite scene in the movie. It's not so much anymore, but I love the scorpion scene.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's a quick one, but it's uh, but like I mentioned before, the actual stop motion on it is some of the best. I mean, it, they look like giant scorpions, and, they, and the the action between the characters and the scorpions looks like it's actually happening. But yeah, we go we get out of Medusa's. Uh, Chamber. You get, of course, Perseus has the head in a cloak because the cloak has been magically transformed because it has touched the eye of the Stygian witches, and so it won't drip the blood and things like this. So they go out, and, you know no one's no one's watching. It's sleepy time. And who shows up? A good old Calabas. And Calabus comes in with his fork hand, because for now after his hand's been chopped off, he decided to replace it with a serving fork. <laughs> and he goes to reach for the head in the bag stabs it with his hand and blood starts oozing out into the ground so what you get then is you start seeing these little maggots on the ground little bugs and then they start turning into scorpions bubo is off doing his own little thing you know scorpions start growing bigger and bigger and bigger bubo realizes something's going on this wise old owl sounds the alarm and what does calibus, calibus do but go ahead and whip him and drop him in the water and of course, Bubo was metal, so it's like, ah, okay, he's out for the moment. <laughs> yeah. But the group hears the alarm, they get up, they see the giant scorpions, and it's time for the battle. You know, and Calabus is, again, um, trying to cause mayhem and make sure that the uh, wedding doesn't happen, or the uh, freeing of Andromeda doesn't happen. So he whips their horses, sets them free, stops Perseus from returning home in any kind of speed, and the scorpion battle begins. You know, And, again, this is uh, some great Ray Harryhausen you know, stop motion.
0: Yeah, no, this, yeah, this is a great scene, and I, again, I loved it as a kid. It's these three giant scorpions fighting Perseus and his two men, and in the back, there's Calabos, like, whipping people and trying to, to, uh, knock them off balance so the scorpions can kill them. And again, when I was a kid, this is the first time I'd ever heard of such a thing as a scorpion, and it quickly became, like, my favorite, like, uh, animal in nature. I didn't realize it was a real thing. I mean, I wasn't that smart so this yeah so i love the scorpion scene and again later there was a video game about two years later called pitfall which also had a scorpion remember the scorpion in that one absolutely yeah so between that this is the golden age of scorpions in movies and so yeah the scorpions end up killing two of perseus's men perseus ends up killing them and and then at a certain point he kills Calabos as well where he flings his sword into Calabos, and we get this particularly gruesome death scene for a PG movie where Calibo's like rise in pain and falls forward on the sword again, kind of Jason Voorhees style in Friday, the 13th final chapter where he goes, falls face forward on the sword But uh, yeah, so Perseus has killed everyone, but really he's the only person left. It's just him and Bubo and the head of Medusa, and they have to get back to Joppa to to save Andromeda and defeat the Kraken. And so I'm just going to skip forward a little scene here where Bubo has to go fly and find Pegasus and retrieve Pegasus. It's kind of a silly scene. I don't like it that much. But it all sets the stage for the last scene of the movie, the big showdown, a Titan against a Titan. Yep, yep. And then we get back to Joppa and things
1: are getting prepped up, and we get some more. This time, not full frontal, but we get some side boob and, a, and butt from Andromeda.
0: Yeah, Andromeda, this is like happy death day here. You know, I'm going to die today, so I have to be bathed and, and prepared by my handlers because I'm still a virgin. So, yeah, they have a whole long shot of her being bathed, and you get full-on back nudity of Andromeda. So just to finish off the movie with a little, uh, a little uh, female action here.
1: <laughs> yep, yep, and then uh of course they're all tying her down to the to the rock in the middle of the ocean there, or not the middle, but off the shore. And I always wonder why are there giant chains just hanging there <laughs> on, on, this, on this rock? <laughs>
0: Convenience. Yeah. They, those are the uh the classic sacrificial virgin chains. They just happen to have there because they're sacrificing so many virgins to the sea.
1: Only on days that end in Y. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, Perseus comes back to Joppa, and he's got the head of Medusa, and he, like, collapses. He's just exhausted after his voyage, and he falls asleep. And, of course, Zeus cannot leave well enough alone. He's like, how about we just wake Perseus up? And he, like, picks him up and wakes him up again. So, Zeus, forever until the end of this movie, meddling with the story. <laughs> well, you know, he read the, he read the last chapter first. <laughs> yeah, so so here we go. Great set piece. Just so much awesomeness in this last scene, we have Andromeda chained to the rock, and all of a sudden, this Kraken pops out of the water, and again, he's just massive, and I was just reading a, uh, some great reviews of kids from the 80s when they watched this movie for the first time, and they're all writing their thoughts of it, and somebody said, I think I dropped a load into my pants the time the Kraken popped out of the water for the first time, he was so scary.
1: Well, yeah, and we don't get a good view of him in the first scene with, with Argos, you know, we only get a little bit of him, you know, basically coming out and is really, you know, hidden which is great, and you know, now we finally get the full-on, forearmed, you know, uh, giant creature, you know, climbing over the rocks, and it's just like, whoa.
0: Yeah, he's cool. And again, for anybody who grew up in the era, you'd know this was the giant toy of the Clash of the Titans set, the Kraken, just this massive six-armed, kind of looks like the creature from the Black Lagoon a little bit. And again, he's just one of the big signature Ray Harryhausen creatures here, just pops up out of nowhere. And like Andromeda's like, oh, crap. And even as a kid, you're like, oh, crap, this dude's going to eat her. (laughs) Light Snack. Yeah, so here comes Perseus flying on Pegasus. They've retrieved Pegasus, and here he comes, and he's got, like, the head of Medusa in his bag, and it's this great moment, like a little chase scene, where the Kraken's about to eat Andromeda, and he gets distracted by Perseus flying around, and the Kraken, like, swipes a hand at one point, and Perseus goes flying into the water. He goes crashing down, and the and the Kraken knocks Bubo out of the sky. Bubo gets knocked down, and so Perseus ends up on land, kind of near Andromeda, and this is his last moment where, uh, where the Kraken's coming to eat him and Medusa, and again and Andromeda, and again nobody can defeat the Kraken. He's un, he's undefeatable. He's like uh, what is the, what is the word? Immortal. And this is where Perseus has his one move. He opens his bag, holds up the head, and and take it away, Jason. Why don't you explain the end of this movie, and uh, especially the fact that the Kraken has abs here apparently. Yeah, the Kraken.
1: Do you even lift? You know, the, the Kraken's been working out apparently. But yeah, Perseus rips out Medusa's head. Thankfully, the eyes are facing away from him. And shines at the Kraken, and sure enough, Medusa's head basically comes to life. The eyes glow, the bright green, this putrid green, and we start seeing the Kraken just just turning a little bit grayer and a little bit grayer. And then from that, the massive amount of weight of stone that he's been turned into starts cracking and crumbling and falling apart. You know, so it's Medusa versus the Kraken. The Kraken gets stoned, and then um, and, and of course he decides, well, it's a good idea. Let's put this away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah he just he throws it, he throws it in the sea. I'm just thinking about the poor little fish down there, you
0: know, know. maybe a nice sea turtles floating by, and all of a sudden you yeah. <laughs> know. Yeah, Perseus immediately turns half the Aegean Sea into stone right there. <laughs> so anyway, Perseus, like you said, he holds up the head, and thank God it's facing away from him instead of towards him. That would have been hilarious, as like that was a take from the movie, the first take. Perseus holds up the head, and he has it backwards, and he ends up turning himself to stone. <laughs> End of movie. Yeah, I think that would be more of a Polish myth than a Greek myth at that point. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so Perseus saves the day, he frees Andromeda, he kills the Kraken, he throws the head of Medusa out to the sea, and, like, again, you think plastic straws cause a lot of damage out the sea. The head of Medusa is gonna be even worse. But you gotta figure,
1: also, there's probably some not-so-couth people in town that decide they might want to go fish that thing up and use it for their own purposes later on.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's a, a little public service announcement for our listeners in Joppa. You can go find the helmet. Don't look for the head. That would be bad. Don't Please don't find that head. I don't want to be held responsible. <laughs> so
1: everything is good. Uh, we basically get Andromeda and Perseus. He frees her,
0: and she, he gets a hug. You know, like, yeah. Happy wedding night. <laughs> a hug. Well, they were holding hands. Now they're hugging. Perhaps after five or six years of marriage, he'll be able to kiss her. <laughs> well you know
1: he he, he, he,
0: may, he might go back and look for that invisibility helmet after all <laughs> yeah this is like the man with two brains I already did a show on that where she's just going to hold out even after their marriage <laughs> yeah so I'm not sure they ever actually consummate the marriage but good for Perseus he's saved the day Andromeda saves the day and we end with basically Zeus up in heaven telling Thetis nah 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 I won you lost ha ha <laughs> and he's like from here on out I forbid any meddling in Perseus's life <laughs> He's like, I win, yes, I'm Zeus. Drops the mic and he re- and he runs out of the room. Well the other thing I like about this too is that is that they, they, they justify this. They
1: say that humans will always be the, the epitome of cowardice, sloth, and mendacity and will never be able to
0: threaten the gods. <laughs> yeah, so Zeus is like, I made the story happen, I'm awesome, they suck, yay gods. <laughs> Go team <laughs> And that's the end of the movie, and then we get a little voiceover from Ammon that all the all the characters in this movie were later transported into the heavens and became constellations, and we see, you know, I always love these constellations, which, which look nothing like the creature they're supposed to be, but we're just supposed to squint and say, oh, yeah, that's kind of a horse, oh, yeah, that's kind of a wing, oh, yeah, that's kind of Medusa's boob. <laughs> Remember, we didn't have high death back then. Yeah. And with that, that is the end of the movie. And like I said, the introduction to Greek mythology for an entire generation, maybe multiple generations of kids, where they learned about this stuff from this movie. And it was such a big deal. And again, this inspired so many kids to play Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, go into classics and write fantasy stories and stuff like that. So again, I just cannot say enough about how important this movie was for its era and how it needs really recognition on shows like staff picks to remind people of that i think
1: uh, i agree i agree and, and uh, heck i still play dungeons and dragons so hey we run into these creatures every once in a while but uh, one last thing i wanted to bring up which uh, we haven't we didn't touch on just a real small thing is that the main theme from the from the movie the, the main music theme um, is is one of those ones that uh, sticks with me, you know, over time. It's it's only one theme. The rest of it's you know forgettable, but the main intro credits and exit credits are are the are the, are the uh, theme that is very solid.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. That yeah, this is one of the iconic themes of its era. It would be so cool if I started this podcast, this episode with that theme, but I didn't. I chose a song from ELO instead because I thought that was more important. But anyway, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll end with something in here at the end of the in the in the stinger at the end. We'll we'll go out with the uh, Clash of the Titans music that I think is yeah, it's one of these really. If you hear it, you'll obviously if you saw this movie as a kid, you'll recognize it instantly. It's one of the most famous songs of its era.
1: Yeah. I, I've enjoyed this conversation. This is a, this is one of those films, like you said, that uh, it did. It's, it's part of my childhood. And one thing I'll always remember, and I'll, I will never in my life watch the CGI version of this film uh, due to lack of interest and due to the fact that this movie was just great as it was.
0: Yeah, and it's, I did see the remake again. I hate even talking about remakes. I, I vow I will never ever do a remake on staff picks. I just hate the concept of them. I saw it. It's, you know, it's okay, but it just does not have the magic of this original one. And one of the things I think that's so neat about this original one. Why is because it's like not played comedically. This movie is played so earnestly and straight. Even though it's the goofiest stuff going on sometimes, but they they believe in the material so much and they commit to it that that's why I think this movie just endures so well. And I've heard other people say, well, they just watched it recently after not seeing it since the 80s and they were surprised how well it holds up. And I think that's because they commit to it so well and they just go with it.
1: Yeah, and that's what I recognized in my rewatch, too. I expected it, but I, I didn't expect as much as I did that the fact that, yeah, it holds up. I mean, the, the, the animation, and again, this could just be also because I'm a huge Ray Harryhausen fan, but the animation is really cool and, and different and unique, and it just feels, I don't know, it just feels right.
0: It does. It's, again, maybe the last of its era. Again, this is the last of the stop-motion movies. It was Harryhausen's big parting gift to the world. He died a couple of years later. But yeah, it's just a... Uh, I watch it with such fondness and and again, I really had a fun time talking about it with you because again, we're both like we're versed in the history of the stuff, this, this classic and mythology and stuff. So it's it's fun nerding out about this stuff. I've I've always found Greek mythology awesome and just at times unintentionally hilarious because the gods are just so ridiculous and some of the stories are so over the top. So it was fun uh, having someone who had a, who appreciates this kind of stuff as much as I do. Yeah, I agree. It was uh, it was a, it was a pleasure talking with you here. This. All right, Jason, again, I just want to thank you for joining me. I want to thank everyone for listening. Again, this is Staff Picks. My name is Mario Lanza. You can reach me if you have any feedback, staffpickspodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there searching for more underrated or underloved movies, and I will try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Stay away from those gods' temples and don't do anything bad in there. Bye.
1: I give Andromeda the most. Beautiful
0: of all prizes, more beautiful than anything on earth, or in heaven, even more lovely than the goddess Thetis
1: herself.